Okay, good morning. Well, that, that was pretty impressive seeing those seniors up here. I remember making my college decision a week before my high school graduation. And then going into my junior year of college, I went to Sanford University in Birmingham. I remember sitting down with my academic advisor, and she said, you realize you can't graduate undeclared? And I said, wow, it's time to pick a major. And, uh, and so I got it figured out. So just the fact that some, you know, bio, medical, engineering, whatever she said, that was impressive. So we're going to keep, uh, keep on moving forward with our uh, sermon series on the Beatitudes. This morning, we're going to look at three different Beatitudes. And just by way of introduction, I want you to think just for a moment about a leadership transition that you've experienced. So some of you maybe go back to your high school athletic days, you're a soccer player, you're a football player, and you get the news that there's a new coach coming to lead your team. Or maybe you're in the business world, you're an employee at a certain company, and you find out that somebody's been promoted, they've been hired, I've got a new manager, I've got a new CEO or, or supervisor. Uh, some of you might be in education, and you're a teacher, and you receive a new principal. And so usually here's what happens. I've worked at West Georgia for about 13, 14 years. I've worked with three different university presidents, two different athletic directors, and three different football coaches. And when you make a leadership transition, when you bring in a new leader, there's a meeting that takes place, okay? And you got to make sure to wear a collared shirt because you want to make a good first impression. But usually that new leader comes in. They're dressed up as well. They have a flashy, slick PowerPoint presentation, and they quickly outline with passion about how they have a new vision for the department, about there's new, pol new policies or new strategies and new priorities moving forward. And the big thing that they want to articulate is that things are going to be better. We're making improvements and we're making changes. Now, if you remember last week, we talked about there's one theme to this long sermon that Jesus is preaching, the Sermon on the Mount. And therefore, there's one theme of the Beatitudes. You remember the word that we hammered home last week? It's the kingdom. Very good class. It's the kingdom. And we said that if Jesus is your king, okay, then you're part of his kingdom. And anything that comes under the rule and authority of King Jesus is part of his kingdom. So here's what I want you to think about. When Jesus came to earth, he inaugurated his kingdom. There was a leadership transition that took place. And unlike a coach, Jesus didn't just promise to win a few more ball games. Jesus said, I'm not here just to improve your GPA or slash the budget. Jesus says, I'm going to make changes, but these are comprehensive changes to your life and to this world. It's cosmic. It's radical. And this is what the Beatitudes are. Jesus is saying, if I'm changing your life, if I'm king of the world, these are the values that I'm bringing to bear in your life and in this world. So just to remind you, the Beatitudes are not a list of eight different groups of people. This is one group of people. This is one group of people that comes under the submission and the authority of King Jesus. So as we work our way week by week through the Beatitudes, the question we're answering is what does it mean, what does it look like to belong to the kingdom of Jesus? And so we're going to find eight statements, and every statement starts with the word blessed or blessed. The Greek word here is makarios. And if you remember, this is different than worldly happiness. This is different than hashtag blessed. When we talk about biblical blessedness, we mean being in, in a right relationship with Jesus because he's the king. We're talking about divine happiness. We're talking about finding our glory in God. And so this morning, we're going to look at the first three Beatitudes. 
Because if you remember last week, very briefly, I talked about how do we enter into the kingdom of Jesus. And Jesus is going to take the first three Beatitudes, and he's going to at length explain the conditions to enter his king, kingdom. And then over the, next, over the course of the next five, six weeks, we're going to take a Beatitude one at a time, and we're going to look at those. And those are really a description, they're a description of those who have already entered the kingdom. So I'm going to read the first three Beatitudes for us right now, and then we're going, to, we're going to listen to what they mean. So I'm going to read from Matthew 5, verses 2 through 5. It says, And Jesus opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So how do we enter the kingdom of Jesus? Well, three things. We've got to be poor, we've got to mourn our sin, and we've got to be meek. So first, we've got to be poor. This is taken straight from verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now think about it this way. If you were to describe our society, our culture, you would say that this is an age that tends to emphasize or focus on the self. Well, how, how can I prove this? Well, think about the last time you were in a bookstore, um, maybe like a Barnes & Noble, like a big chain bookstore. And usually in just about every bookstore, front and center, the biggest department or the biggest section are books devoted to what? Self-help. You with me? And so you'll find the classics, like How to Win Friends and Influence People, The Alchemist, Seven Habits of a Highly Effective Leader. These are classic self-help books. And you, you know, you might not know this about me, but I actually like to read, and I figured I'd pass on just a few unique titles of self-help. So this is the first one that I found. Uh, you know, so for those of you who are more like conspiracy theorists, doomsday preppers, you're worried about the end times, we got right here, How to Survive a Robot Uprising. So that might be a book for you. Here's another one. So, so some of you who, who might not be that cool, you want to work and enhance your popularity, Maybe you graduating seniors are thinking about how to make a good first impression at UGA or Kennesaw State. This is the book for you. Anyone can be cool, but awesome takes practice, right? And then finally, you might be thinking, well, if how-to books or self-help books are so popular, this might be the book for you, how to write a how-to-write book. All right, you see it right there? So we even got manual self-help books for writing self-help books. Okay, and, and look, these, I, I say these jokingly. Uh, but we live in an age of self-help, an age of self, self-help, self-confidence, self-love, and self-care. And these books are all full of different titles and different instructions, but, but at their core, they all have the same message. Believe in yourself. And this message might be implicit, but it says, believe in yourself. You have what it takes. Love yourself. Actualize your potential. Don't listen to the negative thoughts and the nagging doubts, because you have what it takes. And then Jesus comes along and says what? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus has a different perspective. And he says, yourself is not the solution. He says, yourself is what? It's the problem. See, in a sense, what Jesus is asking is the same question that philosophers and academics and all humanity has been asking for centuries. What's wrong with the world? You ever wondered that? We all know that there's something just wrong with the world. There's something distorted, something broken, something off. 
And throughout generations, professors and academics and philosophers, they've thrown out their answer and they've said things like this, well, the problem is just a lack of self-esteem. Or the problem is we just need more education or economic disparities. Or maybe it's genetics or family systems. See, Jesus is saying that, there is, yes, there is a problem in the world, but the problem is this. The problem is sin. And then Jesus actually gets specific. Imagine Jesus answering this question if you asked it to him. Jesus would say, yes, there's something wrong. There's something broken. The problem is sin. And then he would lean in close. He would get eyeball to eyeball across the table. And he'd say, I tell you what, the problem is more specific. The problem is the sin in you. And Scripture backs this up. Isaiah 53, 6 says this, We all like sheep have gone astray, everyone to its own way. Do you see this? What is sin? It's just living for self, going astray. In Genesis 6, 5, God makes this observation of all of humanity. He says this, The wickedness of man was great, and every intention of the thoughts of his hearts were only on evil. What was the problem in Genesis 6? Is that men and women, they were focused on themselves. And nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. There's a famous story. From the early 1900s, there was a newspaper in London that decided, we're going to answer this question, what's wrong with the world? And so here's what they did. They enlisted a lot of academics and professors and philosophers, and they just said, would you write an opinion article? And we're going to feature it in our newspaper. And simply answer this question, What is wrong with this world? Or what is the problem in the world? So one of the thinkers that they reached out to was a British man named G.K. Chesterton. Okay, this guy was brilliant. He he was best friends with C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien. And so they were expecting something thick, something deep, nuanced and comprehensive and philosophical. And I'm actually going to read G.K. Chesterton's reply. It was this. To the question of what is wrong with the world, he responded, the problem in the world is me. Signed, G.K. Chesterton. So there's actually a psychological term that backs this up. You ever heard this? The fundamental attribution error. I know that's a mouthful. And you might, under, you might not understand this. All right, think back to your Psych 101 days. But it basically goes like this. Is that anytime we, anytime we succeed, we give ourselves credit. And anytime we fail, we blame it on something else. Anybody identify with that? Whether you, whether you recognize it or not, We all, naturally as humans, we want to connect with winners and distance ourselves from losers. And you know who does this every week in the fall? SEC college football fans, okay? And Georgia fans are the worst. Here's how it plays out. Here's how it plays out. See, when they play Auburn, they say this. They show up to church on Sunday, and they say, did did you see the game? We won the big game, right? We won. I always want to ask ask them and say, well, well, how many rushes did you have, and how many tackles did you make, and what number are you in the program? Because they say, we won. They take credit for it. But then a couple weeks later, all right, the Alabama Crimson Tide comes to town, all right, and they get stomped, and they show up to church on Sunday, and they say, what? I can't believe they lost, right? We win, and they lost. We want to connect with winners. We want to distance ourselves from losers. We, there, there is something natural in our human psyche that we don't want to be poor. We don't want to be poor in spirit because that means spiritually we're bankrupt, we're insolvent, and we can't pay back the the debt. Now think about this. Who knows that they're poor? Well, beggars do. 
I'm sure at some point in your life, you've come across a beggar in a big city or an urban area, and they simply ask for money. Beggars, they don't barter, they don't negotiate, they don't try to strike a deal, either with a cardboard sign or with their own words, they simply plead for mercy, for generosity. This is what it means to be poor in spirit. See, if you're not poor in spirit, you think this way, I just need to clean my life up. I'm just on the wrong path. I need to get back on track. I'm going through a bad patch in life, and I need a little boost. Now, someone who's poor in spirit prays this way. They say, God, I owe you everything, more than I can pay. I'm spiritually broke because my problems, they're beyond me. Now, think about this. Several of Jesus' most famous parables describe characters that are poor in spirit. Do y'all remember the parable of the two sons or the prodigal son? There's a younger son who says to his dad, Dad, I'm out. I want my inheritance. I'm going to blow it on reckless living. And eventually he burns through his money, through wiling out, and he reaches a point where he's living with pigs and he's eating the slop along with them. And the Bible says, or Jesus says in this story, he comes to his senses and he decides to head home. And his father is a good father, and he's scanning the horizon, and he sees his smelly, dirty son trudging forward. And what does the father do? He drops everything, and he sprints and embraces him. Would you remember the first thing the younger brother says? He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. That's poor in spirit. There's another parable that Jesus tells about a tax collector and a Pharisee. And to compare and contrast. And the Pharisee believes that he's spiritually rich. And so he looks down on people and says, I'm glad I'm not like them. But then there's the tax collector. And he's at a distance and he beats his chest. And his prayer is short and sweet. And he says this, have mercy on me, a sinner. So the point Jesus is making in the Beatitudes, but also these parables, is that God saves those who are poor in spirit. But God not only saves the poor in spirit, he also uses the poor in spirit. I'll give you one example. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Let's think about Moses. Think about Moses. We're about to talk about meekness, but you know this. Moses was described as the meekest person on earth. Let me, let me just give you a quick little sidebar. Our, our first introduction to Moses in leadership, guess what he does? He kills somebody. He murders somebody in anger. He, he, he's emotionally mature. He's reactive. And what does God do? He sends him to the desert or the wilderness to be a shepherd. And slowly but surely, God sanctifies him and develops him. And let me just say this about poverty in spirit, meekness and humility. It, it, it's not a temperament. It's not a character trait. It's got nothing to do with your Myers-Briggs, okay? And you might say, well, I, 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 you know, I, I'm passionate, I'm emotional, and God is slowly but surely going to work and make you into somebody who's meek and humble. He does this with Moses. And so God shows up to Moses in a burning bush. Do you remember this story in Sunday school? And this is when God recruits Moses. He enlists Moses. He says, Moses, I got a job for you. I want you to free Israel from Egyptian captivity. And so if you remember... God makes his plea to Moses, and Moses responds how? Does he say, sign me up? I'm ready to go. I'm the man for the job. He says what? He says, who am I? Who am I? Well, how does God respond? 
he actually sidesteps the question. And he doesn't really answer it. Instead, he says this. He says, Moses, he says, I'm going to be with you. And then Moses responds. He says, well, what am I going to say? God simply says, I am who I am, meaning I'm eternal. There's no beginning, no end, and I'm with you. And then finally, Moses is exasperated. He says, well, God, you know I can't talk. I'm not a good communicator. I'm not eloquent. More than likely, Moses had some sort of speech impediment or a stutter. And guess what God reminds him? He says, I'm going to be your mouth. I'm going to speak for you. And towards the end of the conversation, God actually gets a little angry. He gets a little angry. And and he's not angry because Moses has low self-esteem and he's lacking self-love. He's not angry because Moses has a low view of himself. He gets angry because Moses has a low view of God. And so here's the solution that God gives Moses. It's not self-esteem. It's not confidence. It's not not a how-to manual of how to talk to Pharaoh and free the Israelites. God simply reminds him. He says, Moses, you got to get your eyes off yourself because I'm with you. And I'm going to give you the words to say and I'll even be your mouth. So God saves, God uses those who are poor in spirit. Let me give you one final picture of what it means to be poor in spirit, and this is going to be extremely practical. This is how it would actually play out in your prayer life. Now, very often in our culture, when we think about prayer and the physical posture for prayer, what do you think about? You think about hands folded, hands clasped, okay? This is the prayer emoji. You with me? I think we got a picture of this, okay? The prayer hands, Would you know this? In the ancient Near East, back in Bible times, this is actually not how they prayed. And then when they would address God in prayer, because they believed that God was king of kings, they would come before God just like they would a physical or earthly king. And so when they would walk into the courts, they would not do the folded prayer hand emojis. Guess what they would do? They would kneel on both both feet, and they would actually hold their hands up empty-handed. Have you ever read the Psalms that say, lift up your hands? This is the posture. This is the stance. And here's what it means. First off, I've got no power. I'm not holding any weapons. There's no swords. I'm completely vulnerable. You can take my head off if you want. I'm in a vulnerable position. But second, they were saying this. They were demonstrating this. I've got no merit. There's no gold. There's no jewels. There's no treasure. There's nothing I can offer you. I'm completely weak. But third... When they held their hands empty, guess what? They were confident. Because they were saying to this, this to the king, you know me. I'm a part of your kingdom. And I'm valuable. I'm precious. And my hands are open because I'm expectant that I'm going to receive something. So this is what it means to pray to our king. We come to God weak, undeserving, but also treasured. You ever thought about this? Self-confident people, do they pray? No, because they try to fix their own problems. But those who are poor in spirit, they're humble in themselves, but they're confident in God. So I'd be willing to bet, especially some of our old-timers, our hymn lovers in the crowd, as we've talked about what it means to be poor in spirit, what's what's the hymn lyric that has come to mind? Rock of Ages, right? Because in Rock of Ages, it says, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. This is the heart of someone who's poor in spirit. So first, we've got to be poor. This means we recognize 
that the biggest problem in the world is sin, and it's the sin in me. But this begs the question, well, what should we do with our sin? Do we just acknowledge it? How should we feel about our sin? What should we do about it? So now we move on to the second beatitude. we got to mourn. Verse 4, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, we don't mourn very often in our culture, but the only things we mourn are death and tragedies. But Jesus is specifically addressing how we should deal with our sin. He's saying we need to mourn or repent of our sin. And oftentimes, we actually deal with our sin in sinful ways. Oftentimes, we tend to minimize our sin. That means we say things like this, well, it's not that big of a deal, or it wasn't hurting anybody, or at least I didn't do blank. You see that? We minimize our sin. Other times, we'll rationalize it. This is when we focus on circumstances, and we say, well, if my boss wasn't so mean, I wouldn't wouldn't have acted that way. Or "I, I really didn't have a choice, or I was tired, I was up late, I had a few too many drinks. We tend to justify or rationalize it. That's when we focus on circumstances. Sometimes we blame shift, we pass the buck, and that's when we focus on other people. And we say things like, well, if my kid wasn't so rebellious, I would have responded a different way. Or if this person would have treated me different or raised me differently, then I would have responded differently. And then sometimes we just get sad. And we're not necessarily sad about how this affects God, we're sad that we got caught. And that's when we focus on the consequences or the results of our sin. And so if you want to mourn or repent of your sin, your focus, it can't be on other people, it can't be on your circumstances, and it can't be on the consequences. Your focus has to be on what, or more specifically who. It's got to be on God. Because as long as you see sin as simply breaking a rule, you'll never mourn over your sin. You've got to see it as breaking the heart of God. It's got to move from being impersonal to personal. And that will lead to mourning. This might help you understand what it means to mourn of your sin. there, There might be some men in the room who identify with this. But I do everything I can in my life to avoid going to the doctor's office. Okay, anybody with that? Anybody identify with that? Okay, whatever it takes. So two weeks ago, I got some pretty bad poison ivy. Okay, I mean, it, it, it started in a little spot on my leg, and slowly but surely it worked itself up. I mean, it was on my legs, my chest, my arms. And look, I saw it. I was aware of it. I scratched it. I spread it. I knew I had poison ivy, but I still refused to what? To go to the doctor. So I was deeply aware of the symptoms, okay, but here's what my wife understood, that something was deeply wrong with me, okay? <laughs> and she convinced me, all right? You got to call Dr. Eric. So I did. And this is what it means to mourn our sin. It's not just being aware of the symptoms of my sin, but understanding that there's something deeply, personally wrong with me. This is the prayer of someone who mourns over their sin. They say this, look, I, I, I'm a sinner. And instead of being sorry for myself and the mess that I've gotten myself into, I'm sorry because my sin has hurt you, God. I've been a rebel. God, you gave me gifts and talents and looks how, look how I've used them. God, I repent. And so when do we mourn our sin? I'm going to give you three situations, three scenarios. First, think about your own testimony and your conversion. They all start with C. But for those of you who are following King Jesus, I bet if you think about your past and your testimony, there might have been a moment, there might have been a day, or probably like me and most of us, 
Maybe there was a month or a year where you not only saw your sin, but you started to feel your sin. It felt personal. And you reached this point where you said, I need a Savior. How can I be saved? So we mourn over our sin when we enter the kingdom or we're converted. But then second, it's continual. Because guess what? Even after our conversion, we continue to what? To sin. Therefore, we need to continually mourn. Martin Luther, the reformer, famously said that all of life is repentance. All of life. So there's a rhythm and there's a consistency to our mourning. And then I'll finally say this. I wish I had more time to unpack and preach on this. But there's also a communal dimension to our mourning. This is what the Bible would call lament or lamentation. We actually do this some Sundays when we come together. We, we lament as a community. And so we not only mourn the sin that is in us, when we lament the sin in our community, we're, we're mourning the sin around us. So, so we mourn the sin in my life, but also my city, my community, my family, my nation, and my world. That's what it means to mourn. And did you notice the promise here? It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Be comforted. Comfort comes when you mourn. There's a point in David's life, King David's life, where he refuses to mourn and confess his sin. And he reflects back on it in Psalm 32, and he says this, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. There's another verse in James where James says this, but when you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you. Excuse me, it says, confess your sin to one another that you may be healed. I misquoted that, that you may be healed. So just in the same way, take my poison ivy story, okay? Real healing comes when you visit the doctor, right? When you go to God for healing. So first, we've got to be poor. We've got to recognize that the problems in the world are right here. It's my sin. Then what do we do with our sin? We mourn it. We repent of it. And then finally, we've got to be meek. We've got to be meek. Verse 5 says this, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Well, what does it mean to be meek? It means to humble yourself. It means to submit your life to King Jesus. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, if, ben, is meekness just softness? Am I just a pushover? Well, I would posit that Jesus was the meekest man that walked the earth, and he was anything but soft and weak. In fact, meekness actually calls for a special type of strength because no longer do you live for the kingdom of the world or by these kingdom values, you live for the kingdom of Jesus. And many times that's in direct contradiction to the world. It requires great strength. But you might be passed over. You might be banged up. You might be taken advantage of. I heard one pastor this week when I was preparing for this sermon, he described meekness as this, as being a punching bag. As being a punching bag. What is the role of a punching bag? You hang it up and it just absorbs hits. Jabs, uppercuts, left, right, left. So when we live lives of meekness, sometimes we get banged up. So how do we be meek each and every day? I'm going to leave you with two things and then we'll wrap it up. First off, you've got to remember a promise. And second, you've got to remember a person. You've got to remember a promise. And the promise is right here. The meek shall what? Inherit the earth. What is an inheritance? An inheritance is when simply the head of your family passes away and you get what? You get all his property. 
You get his full bank account. You get every possession that he owned. So think about it this way just for a second. What if your last name was Carol? And in fact, your dad, your papa, owned all of Carrollton, the town of Carroll. He was the owner of everything. Southwire, Greenway, Tanner, the university, Butter Dutter, you know, whatever your favorite restaurant is, he owned it all, okay? The green belt, every street, every sidewalk, every house was his, okay? And yet, for whatever reason, you were a college graduate living on your own, you had this little shack on the outskirts of town. So your dad owns everything, and you live in this little shack on the outside of town. And so some days you would drive to work, and you would see these big, sprawling suburban mansions. You drive by the golf courses. You drive by the big businesses. And you'd be tempted to what? Covet it. Say, I want to live there. I want to run this business. And what would you quickly remind yourself? That what? Well, one day I will, because I will inherit the city, because my dad owns everything. And one day it will be mine. And what would you do when maybe your, your, your friends and your coworkers start mocking you, making fun, just jonesing you for your little shack? It's so small. It's so nasty. You got holes in your roof. What would you remind yourself? Well, one day I'm going to own everything. I'm going to inherit the city. Well, brothers, sisters, those who are members of the kingdom, do you see right here? One day the whole earth will be yours. You will inherit the earth because you know what? You are a co-heir with Jesus Christ. And the God of the Bible, he created and owns everything. And one day it will all be ours. And the new heavens, new earth, did you know this? That, we, that, that, that Revelation says that we get to rule with God in a redeemed, perfect kingdom. That's the promise we got to hang on to. And I'm going to be honest, this is a hard one to work into your mind and your heart, isn't it? <laughs> it is for me. I've been meditating in it all week. So I want to leave you with a promise, but I also want to leave you with a person. Leave you with your person. Anybody want to guess who the person is? Okay, it's Jesus. When in doubt, say Jesus. But Matthew, the author of the Beatitudes, who, 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 the section that we're looking at, it's really, it's really interesting in, in several pivotal junctures in Jesus' life and ministry. He goes at lengths to point out Jesus' meekness. Matthew 11, you remember this sermon series, Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, where Andrew preached for weeks and weeks about the lowliness and the gentleness of Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 is the one time in the gospel where Jesus actually opens his heart up and says, this is my heart. This is my posture. What does he say? He says, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest for your soul. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Lowly in heart is a synonym for meekness. It's the exact same word. He says, you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So when Jesus opens up his heart, when he describes his heart towards his people, he says, I'm gentle, I'm meek. In Matthew 21, Jesus finally starts behaving like a king. And one thing that kings do when, when, they are, when they're moving into office is they have a joyful procession into their capital city. And in Matthew 21, moving into Holy Week is when Jesus finally goes to Jerusalem. And usually when a king enters the capital city, what did they do? They had a grand procession. They would enter on a war horse. 
There would be cheering. There would be celebration because they had just conquered their foes. Basically, they had killed their enemies. But when Jesus enters Jerusalem in Matthew 21, here's what we see. Here's what we see is that Jesus enters not on a war horse, but on a colt, on a small donkey. And he isn't wearing a crown. He's wearing just normal dress. And he's not coming because he has killed people. He's coming to be killed. And yet he is a conquering, meek king. It says this in Matthew 21, 5. And this is a fulfillment of a prophecy. It says, behold, your king is coming to you humbled or meek, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And then just one week later, Jesus goes to the cross. And you know this? This is the first time that Jesus is publicly acknowledged as king. It's on the cross. Let's go to the next slide in Matthew 27. And there's a sign that hangs above him that says, this Jesus is king of the Jews. So he's called king, but they're mocking. They're sarcastic. They, 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 put, him, they put a robe on and they quickly rip it apart and they leave him naked. They give him a crown, but it's not a crown of gold and precious jewels. It's a crown of what? A crown of thorns. And Jesus, in his meekness, he doesn't open his mouth. He's led to the cross like a sheep is led to slaughter. So even in his death, Jesus is completely meek. And this is totally different than how most people face death, especially death on a cross. Most criminals, they would spit, they would curse, they would urinate on the crowds, and yet Jesus prays for the people because he's fully meek. And Jesus fully demonstrates his meekness because on the cross, he's a punching bag. So why can you and I absorb the hits that life and adversity and a fallen and broken world throws at us? It's because Jesus absorbed the ultimate hit, didn't he? The hit that he took on the cross was taking on the full wrath, justice of God, and he took it on our, on our behalf. And so here's the final thing I'd say is that we are saved by the meekness of Jesus, we're saved by the meekness of Jesus. And therefore, when we engage with meekness, we draw attention to Jesus. I'll leave you with one final verse because here's what we see. This promise and this person actually come together in one verse in Romans 8:32. It says this. It's talking about God the Father. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? So brothers and sisters, citizens of the kingdom, what gives us the strength to be meek and to absorb hits, to be a punching bag, is this right here. Is that the most precious thing in God the Father's life was his son. It was Jesus Christ. And he gave him up. And he gave him up for you. And this is a guarantee, this is a promise that one day we will inherit the earth. And God will make us eternally happy or blessed. Okay? I'm going to pray for us. Dear Lord, we, we thank you for the Beatitudes, and we thank you that you line out for us what does it look like to live the blessed life, the happy life, the divinely pleasing life. Lord, we thank you that you not only give us instructions, but you also give us an example. You give us a Savior who lived this out perfectly each and every day. Lord, I pray that as a group, as a, 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 a group of believers, followers of you, members of your kingdom, that we would live lives that are full of poverty of spirit, humility, mourning, and meekness. Lord, I pray that um, 
we would be meek people who don't draw attention to ourselves, but draw attention to you. So we pray your name, amen.